When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm often asked, are philosophical questions the same uh, from, from period to period? Well, yes, there are some very profound philosophical questions that is uh, kind of eternal, like uh, what is this world, where does it come from, and so on. Justine Garder is one of Norway's most well-known authors and philosophers. In the early 1990s, he wrote Sophie's World, which became a global bestseller. It has since been translated into over 60 languages. Written from the perspective of a child, Sophie's World is a novel which explores the history of philosophy and it captured the imagination of children from across the world. Looking back at this book now, however, there is one thing he left out. Sometimes brand new questions arise. I wrote that book without uh, including what I today would not hesitate to call the most important philosophical question today. How will we be able to save the life conditions on Earth? On the day the court case was filed, Justine joined the leaders of Greenpeace and Nature and Youth and gave a speech on the steps of the courthouse. I'm here today as a philosopher and a human being to show my support for this historic lawsuit. An important basis for all ethics has been the golden rule or the the principle of reciprocity. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. You shall do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the golden rule can no longer just have a horizontal dimension. In other words, uh, we and the others. We must realize that the principle of reciprocity also has a vertical dimension. You shall do to the next generation what you wished the previous generation had done to you. We have no right to hand over a planet Earth that is less worth or in a more miserable condition than the planet we ourselves have had the good fortune to live on. For us, our own time is naturally of the very greatest importance. But we cannot live as though our time is the most important for those who come after us too. Twelve months since that speech was made, the moment has finally arrived. Over seven tense days, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth will now confront the Norwegian government and argue before the judge that Arctic oil is unburnable carbon. With the Norwegian grandparents' climate campaign also joining the fight, this case unites all generations of Norway and brings climate change into the courtroom in the wealthiest oil-producing nation on Earth. November 13th, 2017, 
the day before this historic trial begins. Our team flies out to Oslo to follow the case. Over recent decades, Norway has on many fronts transformed itself into the world's poster boy of sustainability. And travelling from London to Oslo, the contrast between the two cities is plain to see from street level. One thing I'm definitely noticing is that there is just, there are so many electric cars around. The cars are just gliding silently around the city. I have to like really like check left and right before I make my move onto the road in case I'm going to get knocked out. Norway has the highest number of electric cars per capita in the world, nearly three times as many as its nearest competitor. On top of this, Norway's electricity supply is almost 100% renewable, mostly from its hydroelectric dams. But beneath the nation's green image is the stark reality that, per person, Norway's carbon emissions are twice the global average and 40% higher than even the European Union. The reason for this is Norway's oil and gas industry, the country's biggest emitter and whose carbon footprint is still growing. We made our way to the courthouse where a press conference was about to take place. There we were greeted by Ingrid Schaldeweyer, head of Nature and Youth. Hi, how are you? Jostein Garder and Trulls Gullivson, head of Greenpeace Norway. How's it going? That's the people behind the voice. It's becoming real now. Uh, until now it has been lots of preparations and other planning happening and it's all culminating in this uh, this trial and these two weeks, short weeks. We have the much bigger level of interest than we expected and we sort of force this issue into the national agenda in a way that they have to pay attention. Uh, I saw even today the, the oil and energy ministry were, were, were tweeting um, their comments to the case. We're just going, to, wow. We also met Steiner Hoiback, leader of the Norwegian Grandparents' Climate Campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm Cormac. Oh, you go on. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. This is Ivar. As the press conference drew close, a large object hidden beneath a sheet began to draw attention from the public. They started by revealing what was underneath. Fantastic! We unveiled an ice sculpture. It's a big like, wall of ice. The um, six-ton sculpture was built overnight by a, by an ice artist. Carved into the ice were the words of Article 112, which state... Every person has the right to an environment that is conducive to health and to a natural environment whose productivity and diversity are maintained. Natural resources shall be managed on the basis of comprehensive long-term considerations which will safeguard this right for future generations as well. The authorities of the state shall take measures for the implementation of these principles. It's a nice st- symbol that's going to be there for the trial to remind us of what's at stake. And it looked beautiful. Once the ice sculpture had been revealed to the crowd, speeches were given in turn by Ingrid, Steiner, 
and trolls. I was saying how how it's important for us as a youth organization to be a part of this lawsuit. What I did say was uh, that we, the grandparents, uh, have an obligation to help the young ones. It felt very encouraging that there's so many were there. And I think they had a really good time and felt that this is, this is indeed a historic moment. Looking on from within the crowd was Katrina Hambro, one of the lawyers who would be standing up and arguing the case in court the following morning. I'm Cormac. Hi, Cormac. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. So how, how, how is everything going uh, in the preparation for tomorrow's case? It's going well. We have worked hard for a long time now. We had a very big burden of work during the last days of, uh, of uh, last week and over the weekend. And now I think we are getting there. We need to use the rest of this day to, to finish some details, but then we're ready. Right, and then uh, tomorrow will be game time, will it? Yes. When there 9am start, is it? It starts at 9am. Right, OK. After the press had dispersed, the Attorney General happened to walk by too. And he was, he was going from his office to another meeting, apparently. Frederick Seierstedt is the lead lawyer for the state and would be defending the government in court. We had a quick chat and, uh, and he was uh, clearly impressed by our piece of art. And when he came back, actually, I saw he, uh, he stopped up and took several pictures of the, of the sculpture with his phone, which was uh, quite funny. <laughs> he has also argued in the media today that, that uh, he and the state is prepared to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary, which I think is also, as I tried to also joke with him today, so I know, OK, so you are preparing to lose since you're already now talking about Supreme Court. Uh, he didn't really buy that one, but I think it might be, as an optimistic person, it might be a sign that, uh, that he's getting ready to lose and then appeal, which is fine for me. During the afternoon, we met up with Einstein Vestre, legal team lead for Greenpeace. The last month has really been crunch time. Uh, going through the evidence, going through the, the lines of arguments, fact-checking, uh, helping the lawyers, providing them with uh, the background material that they need, uh, answering their calls. They're really thinking out how to, to make the case in court. And our uh, task is very much kind of supporting them. Shortly afterwards, his brother Torger, a central board member for Nature and Youth, arrived too. I've been around schools trying to recruit for our organization the last week. And, like, and some people, when they hear about it, they think, that, whoa, that's really cool. The heroes were like, whoa, you're suing the government? We've got the, the biggest, uh, biggest room in the, the courthouse. So uh, it'll be <laughs> exciting to see if we can deliver on the court's expectations <laughs> for how many we'll meet. Uh, we'll meet. But I think there's going to be uh, quite a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, we have some members from our organization who are going to travel across parts of the country, like from other parts of the country just to be in court. So it's like people think it's important to be there. It's like a, a historic event and people want to be part of it. That's motivating. This is not just about the case to be heard in court. It's also about uh, talking to people about the right to a healthy environment and to and about the, the oil licensing in the north and, and, and kind of spreading the word. I've been uh, working more like on a campaign where I try to coordinate what's going to happen in social media, traditional media, uh, and in Oslo uh, during the week. I think uh, the way to approach it campaign-wise is like there are a lot of different people who've come together to make this happen. Everything from artists uh, to musicians 
to lawyers, to professional activists, to authors, to everything. Like everybody have their different approach and a different contribution to this court case. So we're basically making a festival, a cultural festival in Oslo these two weeks <laughs> because we had so many things that people wanted to contribute. That evening, a few minutes walk from the courthouse, an open event was held at Oslo's Culture House to explain to the Norwegian public why the plaintiffs are taking the government to court. Volunteers handed out booklets outlining the case and the events happening over the next two weeks. Unbeknownst to those present, one of those booklets would even feature in court the following morning. Later on, Paul Lawrenson, former Supreme Court attorney who was part of the team which rewrote the Constitution, spoke before a full house. I have been a lawyer for 50 years, so I've been up in lots of different situations, but not specific like this one, no. He explained to the audience why they're using Article 112 specifically to protect the right to a safe environment. It's a right for the citizen. It is a, a, a personal right. It's a human right, actually. The issue is how should it be applied in, in a specific situation. Meanwhile, the Greenpeace international lawyers have also arrived. Michelle Yonker Argueta and Richard Harvey. Today, um, got up really early and uh, flew from Amsterdam to Oslo. And took the train from the airport, like most people. Rocked up at about 2.15, I guess. Met up with the team and took it from there. In the weeks leading up to the case, legal support has begun to flow in from influential bodies across the world. The last few weeks have been really busy. We've been working down to the wire, getting uh, support from other international environmental organisations who've written very strong briefs in support of the case. At the same time as, of course, you know, from the Norwegian side, we're also continuing to build our case. It is an incredible experience having all of this come together in the very well choreographed and synchronized way uh, that it is right now. It's almost like a, a play that where different characters have been rehearsing their parts in different parts of the world, and suddenly they're all descending on Oslo en masse. You know, you step back and you see this mosaic and all these building blocks coming together, and then you think, okay, we're ready. something that really struck me today for the very first time. I stood beside the ice sculpture outside the courthouse, and there you have the sculpture of Article 112 of the Constitution. And the very fact that I'm standing there in close to freezing temperatures, looking at this ice and thinking, that's exactly what global warming means. That if the planet continues as it has, that if the Norwegian government continues as it plans to, then that article will simply melt. Those rights will, will just be flushed down the drain. And just seeing it there in ice made that so concrete for me. With all the team together in one place, night descends on Oslo. In the morning, years of preparation will finally be put to the test. 
It's the morning of the 14th of November. The clock is 06.51. And today is the first day of court. Okay. So Alma went to the bus. I woke up about an hour ago and super stressed. Uh, I'm now on the tram down to the city center from my home. This morning has uh, met us with uh, minus seven degrees. The day I go to court, I I prefer not to spend too much time uh, at home with my children, and because then I have to focus on uh, little details. So I guess I'll leave the uh, house uh, early and uh, and just decide that they'll be fine without me. I have to be at court in about an hour. Have time for breakfast. I'm not sure how much time I'll have to eat today, so breakfast is important. Probably going to be one of the most special days in my life. It's like, it's not every day that you get to take the government to court. As we approached the courthouse, a crowd had already begun to gather outside. Within less than 30 minutes, the queue to enter would be stretching down the street. The Norwegian grandparents had turned out in their traditional dress. I have come from Kristiansand to support uh, this day. Yeah, it is uh, 360 kilometers from here. Yeah, so I came yesterday. I took my last uh, holiday day uh, that I have this year to to be here because I think it's very important. But is this um, a, a traditional Norwegian outfit? or? Yeah, this is from uh, Setestalen, where I come from. It's a valley uh, that ends up uh, in Kristiansand, the city where I live. All these are from different places in Norway. Yeah, traditional uh, national customs. From the other side of the world, representatives of the Pacific Islands had also arrived to attend the trial. For Elisi Nasewa and Samu Kuradrani, their homeland is facing an existential threat from rising sea levels. They'd stopped off in Oslo on their way to the UN Climate Conference in Germany, which this year was hosted by Fiji. It's really not a matter of what we do nationally and internationally because climate change impacts, it doesn't know boundaries. You know, it affects everyone. And what we're really trying to push for is that we don't need to explore fossil fuels because we shouldn't be taking it out anymore because exploring it means you want to burn it. This is the first time for us to attend a climate court case and to be here and to see, you know, that the Greenpeace and Nature and Youth, you know, have stepped up and, you know, hold their government accountable, you know, for their actions. It's it's really um, inspiring, you know, to see young people actually, you know, making a move in, 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 a, in the society. As the doors of the courthouse opened, the first snow of the year began to fall. And walking up the steps... We bumped into lawyers Richard and Michelle. Guys, hey Richard, how's it going? Good to All see good. You. Your hands on first. For me, what happens when I walk into a courtroom on the first day of a major case? You're usually preoccupied with all kinds of relatively minor issues, like is my tie straight? Uh, have I uh, got my laptop? Uh, properly charged. You've got your, all your documents in the bag ready to go. Uh, laptop, docs, everything, yeah. So ready to go. Documents? We're, we're paperless. <laughs> the new age. And that hopefully takes your mind off the reason why you should be scared out of your wits. 
Shortly afterwards, we met Katrina. Good morning. How are you? Not bad. How are you feeling? Good. Well, excited. <laughs> and then, in the courtroom, the legal team finally came together. Hopefully we will feel that we are well prepared and we are ready to start this marathon law case. It can compare at least to an exam. You do everything possible to make sure that you have prepared for every eventuality. So you don't walk into the courtroom wondering what you're going to say with your first words. You walk in not only having your first words prepared, but having tested them out with your colleagues first. I guess I will have my heart in my hands, as we say in Spanish, con el corazón en la mano. Yes, true. It's suddenly real. We're here. It's very strange. As three generations of Norwegians and supporters from around the world began to fill into the courtroom, soon it was standing room only. National and international news teams stood behind the bar, cameras and recorders in hand. On one side of the room sat the lawyers and leaders of the plaintiffs, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth, and the interveners, the Norwegian grandparents. Facing them from the other side was the Attorney General of Norway, his legal team and representatives from the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy. And in the middle, the judge entered from behind the bench. The room rose to its feet. The trial began. We followed the case via the live English translation. The court is in session. Also, this court are hearing a civil case. The claimants are... With formal proceedings underway, Katrina and Emmanuel opened by explaining to the judge why the plaintiffs have taken the government to court. So... We are now opening this case, which is said to be unusual because it's the first time the environmental organizations directly invoke Article 112 of the Constitution. Katrina outlined how exploring new areas for oil drilling is in violation of the people's constitutional right to a safe and healthy environment. The licenses are doing the opposite. They are paving the way for further global warming. And it's the first uh, licenses that were awarded after we... She also argued that the Parliament knew what it was doing when it voted through the new article in 2014. Past 110B and 112... Illustrating this point with the story of Odysseus. Uh, Odysseus knew that he couldn't trust himself, so he chose to be tied to the mast. Correspondingly, the Parliament knows that the Parliament can't trust themselves in all contexts. And that's why we have the Constitution. The Parliament knows, for example, that financial desires can put other considerations and maybe considerations to the environment under pressure. Therefore, the environmental um, provision was passed because... Then, Emmanuel took over and argued how it is time for the government to take its climate responsibility seriously. 
by actually decreasing emissions and not just stopping them from rising even further. If a friend tells me to that he's going to quit smoking, how, how much should you quit? If I'm going to smoke five more, I'm going to cut the five. I'm just going to stay at the same level. Of course I would laugh at him. I wouldn't take him seriously. It's good not to increase emissions, but what we have to do is to cut. The government must either reduce its carbon footprint or face up to the reality that it is undermining the targets set by the Paris Agreement by exploring for more oil. Possibly it's financially and economically rational to bet that the world won't meet them and that the oil and gas prices will stay where they are. And that that is what business economics may indicate. But a judge has to decide whether the state can bet against the climate goals. We would argue that of course they can't. Serious errors have also been made in the economic assessment of whether or not these new Arctic oil licenses will even be profitable for Norwegian society. We would argue that if you assume reasonable terms and the assessment by the state, then we would say that the economy will be negative. Minus 4 billion in the high scenario and minus 12 billion in the low scenario. And the most crucial reason for that, Your Honor, is that they presented numbers without discounting them. Now it's the state's turn to present your opening speech. Next it was the Attorney General's turn to outline the government's defence. Thank you, Your Honour. Attorney Hambro started. In an unexpected move, however, Frederick Seierstedt opened his speech by presenting his outlook on the nature of this case. It's a type of constitutional activism that uh, um, has nothing to do with the Norwegian legal traditions and could be a dramatic change of course if that were to be achieved. It's a type of lawsuit that has been that we've seen in the US up until now. It's an Americanization of Norwegian law, I would say. And the media campaign surrounding it. This Americanization doesn't only apply to the contents of the lawsuit, but also the campaigns around this uh, case. Uh, there's been an unusual activity in the run-up to this case in social media, media, documentaries. He even referenced this podcast, the artwork uh, outside podcast the courthouse, podcast streaming and so forth. How special this campaign was so wasn't understood uh, by me until my uh, daughter showed this pamphlet that she was given uh, on Friday. He held up a booklet with Article 112 written across its cover, the very booklet handed out at the previous night's event. There are events every evening. Uh, it's the first court case in Norway that has its own uh, program. He then proceeded to outline the state's main arguments. We're going to spend a lot of time on the legal basis for this law. And shortly afterwards, the court broke for lunch. Hearing the general attorney's argument, it's reminded me that this is a controversial 
uh, lawsuit, and we have to remember that. And I, I won't comment too much and interpret what he, he said, but he also commented on uh, uh, the publicity around the case and painted it as a negative thing and alluded to the fact that it was just for show. <laughs> he even alluded to the podcast. He showed uh, a flyer with the program for all the events they were hosting around Oslo, and which he had been given by his daughter. So I think if we could have gotten it into his house, then that means that we have reached out to a lot of people. <laughs> Having requested an interview with the Attorney General several weeks prior, with no reply, during the break we decided to approach him in person. He was in fact more than willing to speak with us regarding the case. My name is uh, Fredrik Seierstedt and I'm uh, what we call in Norway the Attorney General of Civil Affairs, which means that I am the, uh, the barrister that uh, represents the government in important cases before the courts. As a former professor of law at the University of Oslo, for him this case ultimately comes down to interpreting Article 112 correctly. This is what the whole case is about. I mean, it's, it's constitutional interpretation. And it's interesting because it's new. This is the first time it's really up to the courts to define and interpret what is the legal meaning of this article. But this is actually a point where, where the parties disagree on the interpretation because the plaintiffs are arguing that what Parliament, acting as constitutional amender in, in 2014, they are arguing that what they did is to, to change this into a kind of a traditional individual right under which uh, any person or legal organisation has the right to, to go to the courts if they feel that there is a violation of, of a certain right. If that's the case, then that would mean that uh, uh, whatever government decision has negative impact on the environment or the climate, then you can bring that before the courts. The government position is that uh, this was not the reason uh, and definitely not what was being done in 2014. What they did was to, to make the duty of action stronger. So our legal argument is that as long as the Norwegian government takes active measures in any specific field regarding the environment or climate change or, or nature preservation, then uh, we comply with the constitution and you cannot come and say that there's a breach of the constitution. So it all boils down to what the state is obliged to do or not do under Article 112 and if enough has been done to protect this right to a safe and healthy environment. The plaintiffs are arguing that the Paris Agreement sets this limit for what is enough and these licences will produce oil that the world can never afford to burn. In contrast, the Attorney General's interpretation is that as long as the government has taken some measures to protect the environment, then they have procedurally done enough to comply with the article. In this trial, a key issue is where this question of doing enough should be settled, in politics or in the courts. These kind of very important, very complex issues concerning uh, climate change, environment, they, the courtrooms are not the right arena for solving them. They are basically saying that they're taking it to court because the politicians are not efficient enough. And we are saying, well, the courts are not the right place to take it. You should take it back to the politicians. But we would say that the judicial threshold for overturning uh, a decision made by King and Council is, should be quite high. But, but there should be a threshold. It should be, in principle, be possible. Once the state had finished outlining its arguments, the leaders of the co-plaintiffs got their opportunity to address the Greenpeace board. An Greenpeace is an economic and Trolls Gullopson went first. International environmental organization. 
I've never spoken in court before. I've sort of been in court when uh, after actions, but that has been on the other side. And so, uh, hello, this is me. That's it. We have 160,000 supporters. We really try to avoid, uh, you know, any type of sort of uh, film uh, circus uh, things. So, uh, the, the, it's of utmost importance to show respect for the for the court and for the judge. As I mentioned, Greenpeace is an independent environmental organization. We kind of really want to stick to all the rules and, uh, and, and, and not because we're not doing this for attention, we're doing this to win. And then Ingrid Schuldeweyer. Nature and Youth has as a purpose to work for future disposal of an more even distribution of the world's resources. I feel it's really interesting to be part of this process because it's something that I've never been part of before and neither has the organization that I'm representing and I think it's a bit nerve-wracking. And all forms of pollution and destruction of the environment should be held at a level that the nature can manage and this is the core of the question that we will be dealing with today. Finally. Former Supreme Court Judge Kettle Lund spoke before the court on behalf of the Norwegian grandparents and he didn't hold back in directly countering the Attorney General's speech. Um, I think now that the Attorney General has said that we, uh, through this action and the campaigns, are trying to Americanize uh, the jurisprudence in Norway. I must say... I have worked seven years in the Attorney General's office myself, and then I had 12 years as an attorney and then 19 years as a judge, and I can't remember ever that I ever heard as a counterparty, opponent, or judge, or Attorney General representative that try in this way to ridicule your opponents. I was quite upset, quite frankly. Uh, well, I think that was an ab- uh, opportunity to to vent my opinion in some very contracted words. He stressed Norway's split personality when it comes to climate change. When the Prime Minister, after mentioning that the situation has to be faced with knowledge, responsibility and cooperation, then stresses the great opportunities that climate change will open up. Melting polar ice, she says, will give us more shipping through that passage between Europe and Asia. And outlined why he thinks Article 112 must be used in this case. Who are immense riches, which are obviously not immense enough for some, and where they are going to drain the barren sea of uh, fossil resources for decades to come, and where the politicians are deaf to any opposition. We regard the constitutional article as... uh, a kind of last chance to sort of uh, not to be able to overcome the political authorities' inability to really address the serious situation. The judge then brought proceedings to an end for the day, giving time for both sides to catch their breath and assess the day's events. I think, I think definitely it has been a very good first day. 
and and the court has been so well attended by by lots of interesting people and lots of proud people that are, have their stakes in this court case. I, I think the older one put the younger ones in place. <laughs> I would say that today has made it very clear that we have two different, very different opinions of how uh, climate policy really functions in Norway. Day two and the case had already drawn the attention of news outlets around the world. They've sent like us articles like, ah, oh, look at this, look how Dagblad, one of the biggest newspapers in Norway, are like pinpointing our message in their editorial. Uh, and also we of course have sent them all the international attention because it's it's been everywhere, like from yeah. Japan to to Colombia. Germany, Colombia to Scotland to yeah, everywhere. The trial was now getting global coverage. With opening statements out of the way, now it was the turn of the expert witnesses to present their evidence to the court. Because our expert witnesses are, well, they're experts. I, I'm interested in how the government is going to approach it. And, and they will be cross-examined by, by both our lawyers and the, and the, uh, the general attorney and... And that's kind of the wild card in terms of how far they push it. The first witness of the day was Einstein Janssen. He has a climate scientist from the Bjergman Center for International Climate Research. He has been part of the IPCC, uh, the, the UN panel for research on climate change. Well, he will talk about the climate status, basically. What's the status of climate change. The second was Bjorn Samset. My name is Bjorn Samset. I'm a research director for um, climate systems research at the Cicero Center for um, International Climate Science in Norway. He will give kind of the, the overview of what's this concept of carbon budgets. What's the What are actually the constraints on the amount of CO2 that you can emit into the atmosphere? We know pretty well now how the climate system works. We know how it changes, we know what we're doing to it, and we also know how much we're emitting per year. And that gives us a budget, right? If you, if you want to say you want to stay within two degrees, then we know how much more carbon can we put into the atmosphere um, before we hit that two-degree target. And that number turns out to be kind of frighteningly low. If we go by today's emissions, we have 20 years. And then we've blown it. Then we've blown the budget for all future generations, everything. No, not a single gram of carbon more to the atmosphere. So that's, that's all we have. The process of turning the ship around has already commenced. So the question is, how fast can we make it turn? It's a huge undertaking. And the politicians have simply, by a stroke of a pen, said, this has to happen. And I, I, I don't think anyone understands the full ramifications of the Paris Agreement. This 20, 23rd and 24th um, concession rounds in, in Norway, which have now been, been, been opened, that's searching for new resources. So it's really extra stuff in addition to all these vast resources and reserves that we know we already have. Um, so which means that in terms of the current budget, of course we don't need it. There's no, no way we're going to be able to burn any of that. By lunch, the judge had asked the state's defence twice if they had any questions for either of the two witnesses. The reply both times was no. 
Then came the economists. You have two economists, which are Knut Einar Rosendahl. So I'm Knut Einar Rosendahl. I'm a professor in economics at Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And Mats Greaker. I'm a senior fellow, research fellow at the Statistics Norway Research Department. Which will be presenting the report that shows that the shortcomings of the economic assessments made in when this this area was open. So we discovered uh, several errors in the economic assessments. The most important one is that when they calculate the the revenues and the cost of this activity, they they do not uh, uh, discount future uh, income and costs. I think it's very important to understand for the Norwegian government that they have a tax system on the continent, Norwegian continent itself. That's that's very investment friendly that you might get investments in oil oil and gas exploration and production that's not socially beneficial and I was also looking at the employment effects and they were exaggerated there was a lot of uh, mistakes made in that report and uh, that exaggerated the results Once more the judge asked the attorney general if he had any questions for either of the economists Again, the reply was no. I I think, to me, the biggest surprise today was that there was absolutely no cross-examination of our witnesses on anything. So they don't challenge the climate science. They don't challenge our experts saying that the government got its figures all wrong. Uh, They don't challenge uh, that our experts say that there is little or no potential economic benefit to Norway from the 23rd licensing round. All that they challenge, it appears, is the legal interpretation of the meaning of Article 112. Well, it's unusual. <laughs> it's, you know, it, obviously, there are cases which don't depend on the facts and they only depend on legal interpretation. But here... Uh, it seems to me the, the factual case that we have put on is overwhelming. And maybe that's why the government hasn't responded, that they don't actually have anything reasonable to say about it. Days three and four and the co-plaintiffs now had the floor. Katrina and Emmanuel explained their arguments in full to the court. When you have a, a law that has never been applied, that has never been interpreted by the courts, you have to look at the sources of law. So you go back and you look at the preparatory works or the legislative history. With Katrina's presentation, she actually took the judge and took the entire courtroom just step by step through the legislative history of this right to show that they intended to make this a right that would be enforceable in courts that not only places in the government a positive duty to take measures but also limits government action such as the opening up of this new area. And then Emmanuel really took us from the assessment of the government and really pointed out all the places where the assessment was just fundamentally flawed. And I remember perfectly well that he said, I'm using the word mistake on purpose because there were mistakes that were made throughout the assessment and just covered up or ignored. At the end of the third day, news of a significant development also began to filter through, which mirrored the plaintiff's arguments of the financial risks of further oil exploration. I opened my laptop and in comes the news that the Norwegian oil fund and the central bank have just sent a recommendation to the Norwegian government that the oil fund should divest all oil and gas shares 
which would be more than 30 billion euros. The managers of the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, a fortune built on the profits of the nation's oil, were now proposing complete divestment from the sector. It shows that it's not only like green hippies that can care about the environment or say that it makes sense to start a transition to a more sustainable future. After the weekend, days five and six saw the Attorney General outline the entirety of the government's defence. We were prepared to be completely slaughtered because he's supposed to be very, very good and the state basically always wins. He spent almost the whole day trying to talk about the Constitution and how he believes that it does not provide a right for individuals. It does not provide the right for everyone to a safe environment. He didn't play any part in the case other than to say that this is really just fine words in Article 112. And although the government, yes, did get its sums wrong in one, in one respect uh, and maybe in several respects, nevertheless, uh, that shouldn't have any impact on the case. And then on Wednesday, November 22nd, the final day of court arrived. Both sides went head to head before the judge for the last time. The last day, I think everything went so fast. Normally, I understand in the system here, you don't normally make a sort of a towering, closing, passionate speech in summarising your case. And I was delighted <laughs> to see that uh, both Katrina and Emmanuel broke out of that. Katrina uh, did go for a strong closing speech in which she summarised the rights of future generations, saying in effect, uh, this generation has no right to burden the next generation with the costs of cleaning up its mess. Katrina came out and really laid out the fact that whichever way you want to interpret Article 112, there is a limitation there. And the limitation is uh, to be interpreted through our commitments in the Paris Agreement. It's so good to be able to tell the court, the court can look to the Paris Agreement for that very difficult question because it's written there and the whole world agrees. After that, the Attorney General had the chance to reply. They just continued to read long lists about what Norway is doing on climate other places without really addressing our key arguments. The state's attorney had never asked any questions of our expert witnesses. So when he started to challenge their, uh, some of their conclusions in his closing speech, Katrina pointed out that uh, he had had the opportunity, but he chose to, to duck it while those witnesses were testifying. And so now to challenge their testimony was not exactly a, a fair way to approach things. I think that if this had been an American courtroom, we would have objected like every other word because they were just basically testifying without substantiating anything. And I think at one point we had a very uh, American-style court moment of objection when it just got out of hand, basically. After that, they were finished. Over three years since Article 112 was passed in Parliament, 18 months since the new oil licences were awarded, and a year since this case was officially filed, the legal battle has finally come to an end. The wait for the verdict has now begun. When we spoke to the team, it was clear that the demands of the trial had taken their toll. I'm completely exhausted, uh, and I think Emmanuel was, uh, was too yesterday. It's so intense. 
and you have to be sharp all day and uh, prepare for the next day all night, all on into the night, so you sleep little. But, you know, sometimes when I've been in court, I continuously think about what I should have said that I didn't say. And that's a very annoying uh, habit. But today I have not had that thought once. And that is, uh, it's a relief and it, uh, it's also a good sign. I think we managed to say every good message that we had to deliver. Well, it feels good to be finished after all the hard work. We feel that we got our arguments through. And um, we always also, I guess, feel excited and um, curious as to how the judgment will be. The verdict is expected in early January 2018. Whatever the judge decides, a deep sense of accomplishment is shared by all members of the team and their determination to win this fight will continue regardless. This case has been the, the centre of my life for two years and I thought that the, the lawyers did such a fantastic job, especially in closing arguments, just bringing everything together. I was just very happy, very glad and also a little bit in, in disbelief. Uh, and now this morning I wake up and I think, wow. One of the exciting things with this is that we, we really honestly have no idea how it will go. If we win, we have also reasons to believe we might inspire loads of others to to use the Paris Agreement, use their constitutional provisions and uh, stop fossil fuels in, uh, in their jurisdictions. It's more than 90 countries all over the world that have comparable paragraphs in their constitutions. Uh, it is absolutely possible to win because the case is very strong. Battling the oil industry in Norway is difficult and you get used to... Uh, losing a lot. Now I feel we have a better chance of winning than we have had in a very long time. If we win, I th- that would be completely unreal because it, it says something fundamental about the entire system and such a decision would mean so much for so many people. It's not just a lawsuit, it's a movement. Not just a movement in Norway, but a growing worldwide movement. So I'm hugely proud, uh, not of myself, but of the opportunity that this has given me to be part of something so much bigger than what any one of us can do. As both sides await the verdict, the significance of this case is being felt from across the world. Having journeyed to the remote parts of the Arctic open for oil drilling by the Norwegian government, Joanna Sestento, survivor of Typhoon Haiyan, has returned to her homeland of the Philippines. After my ship tour experience last August, I've actually been following the case because, believe it or not, some of my family and friends are asking about it. It surprises me because they aren't really the type of people who'd go out of their way to learn about these things. And they always tell me they're hoping the people win. If the people of the Arctic wins, it will reaffirm my purpose on why I'm dedicating my life to the climate justice work. This will be a victory for vulnerable countries like the Philippines and the Pacific Islands. And if all other powerful nations follow, it will be a victory for my hometown, for the future generations. It will be like a testament for the thousands of people who perished during Super Typhoon Haiyan. But they did not die in vain. Because every day, we choose to fight for change to make sure that nothing like Haiyan, Pam, Winston, Harvey, and Irma happens again.
no matter how different we are from each other, all of us just want to live a healthy, safe, peaceful, and quality life. A kind of life that we can pass on to future generations. Humans used to live in a small world on a big planet. Big enough that we couldn't really affect the whole Earth. Now, with over 7 billion of us, we live in a big world on a small planet. And we are changing our home dramatically. Since our species emerged hundreds of thousands of years ago, no human has ever lived in a time when carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were anywhere close to being this high. As a result, 16 of the 17 hottest years on record have occurred since 2001, with last year being the warmest ever. The future of the Earth is in our hands now. The cavalry isn't going to come over the hill to save us. It's up to us and the choices we make from here on out. This climate trial in Norway, like the many others taking place across the world, began with ordinary citizens like you and me deciding that they would step outside the orbit of their daily lives and use the law to protect our continued humanity. But this is something we can all do in our own countries, in an age of growing fear and uncertainty, as we face unprecedented challenges of our own making. The time has come for us to draw a line in the sand, to write in the black and white of the law that we have reached the age of unburnable carbon. Thanks for listening to Unburnable. To follow developments in the case as we await the verdict due in early January 2018, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. Unburnable was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. This episode featured Justin Garder, Ingrid Schuldewire, Trulls Gullivson, Steiner Hoyback, Paul Lawrenson, Arnstein Vestra, Torgir Vestra, Michelle Yonker Argueta, Richard Harvey, Katrina Hambro, Emmanuel Feinberg, Alisi Nasewa, Samu Kuridrani, Frederick Seierstead, Kettle Lund, Bjorn Samset, Knut Einar Rusendal, Mads Greacher, Joanna Sestento, and was narrated by me, Cormac McAuliffe. The producers were Ivor Manley and Cormac McAuliffe. The assistant producer was Natalia Rodriguez. Additional sound recording by Miles Anderson, Amir Barr, and Kariana Opgard Anderson. Sound designed by Ivor Manley, with original music by Paul Fitzpatrick. The executive producers were Harry Watson and Colm Roach. We'd like to thank the following people for their help across the series. Georg Klingler, Sophie Beauregard, Tuco Sipilainen, Jason White, Daniel Bengtsson, Suna Scheller, Halvard Ravand, Paul Patrick Borhog, Holly Aquilina and Jack Ford. <laughs>